So sorry there was no episode last week, y'all. We took the week off, but we used that time to prepare for this week, which is a whirlwind of an episode. And it's actually going to be a two-parter. And these episodes will discuss drug trafficking, police corruption and brutality, and political assassinations. And a lot of people will find this story hard to believe, but others will find it all too familiar. This is the story of Julian Pierce. So this episode is one of the ones we knew we absolutely had to do. It's the first case Brittany and I ever discussed. Julian Pierce was a member of the Lumbee tribe of North Carolina. He was an attorney, an activist, and was running for Superior Court judge in the late 1980s. If he won, he would have been the first Native American Superior Court judge in North Carolina. But in order to tell you Julian's story, We can't start with the story of Julian. We're going to talk about the murders of several other men and women first, as well as the political climate in Robinson County where Julian lived. So Robinson County at this time, so the mid to late 1980s, was fraught with political, social, and racial problems. There was a ton of police corruption. Sources even say that the police were confiscating cocaine and other drugs from people that they arrested and then reselling that, reselling those drugs to others to make a profit. And some even say that the police were selling the drugs right out of the Robinson County courthouse. And this is the time in history, too, when the crack cocaine epidemic was at its height and when Ronald Reagan had begun his war on drugs. Lumberton, North Carolina, which is the county seat of Robinson County and is the town that I'm from, is considered the midway point between Miami, Florida and New York City. So Lumberton became a major hub uh, for drug trafficking and and a major center where the epidemic was a problem, both due to use and to distribution. And if you want to read more about this, I strongly recommend Melinda Maynard Lowry's book called The Lumbee Indians and American Struggle. She talks about um, this issue a lot in one of the chapters. So, in addition to law enforcement trafficking drugs, there were a lot of Lumbee people also involved in the drug business. Throughout history, Lumbee people have engaged in all sorts of different activities, illegal and legal, as a way to provide for their families. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure I have some moonshiners in my family history. Yeah, same. My great-grandma was actually a bootlegger, and I was just going to mention that. Moonshining was one way Lumbee people survived in the 18 and 1900s. And you know, we're not condoning this or saying it's okay, but there is a history in the county of suppressing Native and Black success, businesses, and pursuits of education. And so our people have been forced to get creative or to enter into dealings that they may be under normal circumstances would not have entered into willingly. Yeah, and a lot of this is born out of necessity, like you said, but some of it is out of greed, but definitely some are out of necessity. And also at this time, Native and Black unemployment was sky high in the county, but white unemployment was less than half their numbers. And there were very few jobs at the time also. And so keeping that all in mind, we want to tell you the story of several different murders in the county that was also happening around this same time. In the late 1970s and 80s, there were multiple unsolved murders that happened in Robinson County, mostly murders of Native and Black people. The county actually had a homicide rate that was four times the national average. In 1985, the bodies of Donnie Lee Hunt, Woodrow Butler, and Victor Hammonds were all found in a car near the Lumber River. Each had been shot two to three times execution style. Earlier that year, the body of Kenneth Shod Bullard was found in the river. And in the year prior, in 1984, the body of Kenneth Fontaine was found in the river as well. So there are a lot of murders happening at this time, um, also kind of in conjunction with the river. 
Also, Brittany, in 1985, one of the unsolved murders that has always stuck with me is the murder of a 36-year-old black woman named Joyce Sinclair. So, in 1985, she had just gotten promoted from the assembly line to supervisor at a local textile mill called Burlington Industries, which had made some people angry because she was black. On October 31st of that year, her dead and partially nude body was found behind a clubhouse in a field where a KKK rally had been held. She had been sexually assaulted and stabbed multiple times. Her four-year-old daughter said that a white man wearing white clothes had come to the house, that her mother had made the man a sandwich, which he ate, before he led her down the road while she was wearing her bathrobe. Her husband was at work at the time. Her murder remains unsolved, even though in 1986 they said they had a very strong suspect. And I also just remember reading about her case and thinking, you know, like, oh, my God, I can't believe that this even happened here. And I also read that the sheriff said that this was not a racially motivated crime. But if you don't know who did it, I guess, how would you know that? Um, And then um, also they have DNA in this case. So I'm not really sure why they wouldn't test it now with all of the uh, technological advances that we have at this time. um, in the county uh, with with black and Indian people being murdered regularly and their murders going unsolved, black and Indian men are also being imprisoned at extremely high rates. So both the sheriff and the district attorney at this time were white men, as most as were most people who were in power in those days. And the sheriff, who is central to our story, is named Hubert Stone. Now, Stone has a son named Kevin, who is a deputy, and that will later become very important to this story. So just keep his name in mind. And the district attorney's name is Joe Freeman Britt. One of the wildest aspects of this case is the fact that Joe Freeman Britt was at the time named the deadliest prosecutor in America because he had secured more death row convictions than any other prosecutor in history. He had a total of 47 death row convictions. And mind you, Robinson County is not a population dense area. We don't have big cities in the county like New York or even Charlotte. And I mean, Brittany, we don't even have mid-sized cities. Like, I wouldn't consider Lumberton to be a mid-sized city at all. So for a prosecutor in a relatively small, low-population area to have more death row convictions than anyone else in the nation is a major deal. Yeah, old Joe Freeman Britt. There is so much that I could say about him, and none of it's good. And I remember the the cases of two brothers named Henry Lee McCollum and Leon Brown. In 1984, so around, again, around the same time that our story is set, these two brothers were convicted of the murder and rape of an 11-year-old girl named Sabrina Blue. Joe Freeman Britt was the prosecutor at the time. The two brothers were 19 and 15 and had intellectual disabilities and low IQs. In 2014, DNA testing proved that they did not commit the crime and they were set free. And another um, person was identified as the actual killer. And if I could sum up Joe Freeman Britt, this case would just about do it. In approximately one-third of all the cases that he ever prosecuted, he committed some act of misconduct, including hiding evidence from the defense. Yeah, considering all the unsolved murders on top of the misconduct happening in the judicial system, on top of the police corruption happening in the area, Robson County was really at its bullying point. Then, in 1986, another murder happens. This time, it was a 36-year-old Lumbee man named Jimmy Earl Cummings. Now, Jimmy Earl was a known drug dealer, but he wasn't big time in the county. He was kind of just a small-time drug dealer. Now, remember that at the time, the Sheriff's Department is actively involved in trafficking the drugs that they confiscate. 
So there was 500 grams of cocaine that had been confiscated from a dealer. These drugs were put in a locker in the sheriff's department. One of the people who had a key to that locker was Kevin Stone, the sheriff's son. The cocaine from the locker mysteriously went missing and there were no signs of forced entry to the locker. So Jimmy Earl Cummings was said to have known what happened to that cocaine. And on this part, we're unclear as to why, but Jimmy Earl reportedly told his sister that he knew that Kevin Stone wanted to kill him. Sources also say that Kevin had been driving by Jimmy Earl's home repeatedly throughout, you know, the course of a few weeks or days. And we're not sure if Jimmy Earl was going to tell or if there was some kind of external pressure to uproot all of the corruption happening at the sheriff's department. And maybe if Kevin wanted to ensure that Jimmy wouldn't rat him out. But we do know that Jimmy was fearful specifically of Kevin. And so on the night of November 1st, 1986, Jimmy Earl Cummings was pulled over by a deputy while he was driving his 1980 Ford Pinto. And that deputy was, of course, none other than Kevin Stone. Jimmy Earl also had his girlfriend with him at this time. Now, Kevin says that he pulled Jimmy Earl over for a traffic violation. But again, Jimmy had the knowledge of the missing drugs and was fearful of Kevin. His fears were completely justified. That night, Kevin claims he found marijuana in Jimmy's truck and that Jimmy ran away from him. Then Stone chased after him, but said he was scared of Cummings. While Jimmy Earl's running, he eventually falls down, so Stone has some time to catch up to him. He said that Jimmy waved a plastic bucket at him, which made him fearful for his life. And then Stone falls and claims that his gun went off while he was falling and that Jimmy Earl fell. But he also told another story that he and Jimmy had gotten into a scuffle over the gun and that he shot Jimmy in self-defense. But that night, when the backup officers came on the scene, including the man who's the current sheriff of Robinson County, they found the dead body of Jimmy Earl Cummings in a ditch, face up, shot in the head. And learning about this case has always just enraged me. There is such a long legacy of police killing unarmed black and native men, but this one just hits very close to home, I guess because it happened at home. And it did for the community too. This was the last straw for them. The people were enraged. More than 1,000 black and native people protested in the streets of Robinson County. They sang, We Shall Overcome, as they marched through the streets and demanded justice for Jimmy Earl. They carried signs that said, Fair treatment in the courts, end major drug trafficking, stop excess force, and also one that read, Indian hunting open, who's next? And this also has some similarities to the protests that happened this summer after the murder of George Floyd. So even though the circumstances are different, both represent kind of a tipping point or like the straw that broke the camel's back. Because like George, Jimmy Earl was not the first person this happened to, but people can only endure so much before they refuse to endure anymore. And I think this was a situation like that. Yeah, and I thought the same exact thing. There are so many similarities to that time in history with today, especially when thinking about the Black Lives Matter movement or the missing and murdered indigenous women's movement. You know, all of this is tied to history. Nothing is new under the sun. And so out of the protests that happened, you might be wondering what the sheriff's department decided to do. Now, remember that Kevin Stone is Sheriff Hubert Stone's son. And also remember that Joe Freeman Britt is the district attorney and that Britt and Stone also had a strong working relationship due to their similar you know, for lack of a better word, goals. And so Joe Freeman Britt made the decision to not convene a grand jury to decide whether Kevin should be charged for murder of an unarmed man. Instead, he decided to have a coroner's inquest, which was conducted by a funeral director who had no legal training. And Chelsea, please tell these people what the funeral director determined. 
So the funeral director, Mr. Chalmers Biggs, decided after just 12 minutes of review and no testimony from Kevin that the shooting was A, either accidental or B, in self-defense. Which to me is crazy because how can it be either? You know, both are extremely different. Either it was an accident or it was on purpose. And Kevin actually claimed that it was an accident and it was in self-defense. He just said that he said that his gun just went off and that he felt threatened. And so there are a lot of contradictions in this case. And there definitely need to be a, a much more intensive um, you know, investigation into what happened. And I remember a few years ago talking about this case with my granddaddy. And when he told me that Jimmy Earl had a bucket and that Kevin Stone claimed he felt fearful for his life, I almost just couldn't believe that. And again, this story um, has played out in modern times as well. You know, thinking about Trayvon Martin holding the Skittles and the Arizona tea and so many other cases of people just holding very innocuous items, but still being perceived as a threat to others. Exactly. And also at the hearing they had where there was testimony from the officers who responded to Kevin's call, Jimmy Earl's girlfriend was not called to testify, even though she was legit the only person there besides Jimmy and Kevin. Apparently, the judge told her not to talk about the case either. But the year after Jimmy Earl was murdered, a committee formed through the state's commission on Indian affairs and found that black and Indian people were two times as likely to be arrested than white people. So the protest and overall public outcry was completely justified. There was a legacy in the county of unfair treatment that was proven through this data. I'd also love to know the current stats on that. If anyone has it, please shoot us a message. And also, the report that was done by the committee showed that Indian and Black defendants were often berated or ridiculed in court. Their clothes were mocked, and they were told that you people don't pay fines, and so on and so forth. So overall, the committee found a lot of misconduct and racism that was rampant in the county. And also, that same committee that you referenced earlier, they also found that Indian people were three times more likely to be convicted of crimes than white people who were arrested for similar crimes. And so despite public outcry over Jimmy's murder and then outcry over there being no justice in the judicial system, Kevin Stone remained on the police force and the police continued their harassment of Indian and black people in the county. And at this time, Jimmy Earl's family is still seeking justice for him, you know, at that time in history. And so two years after his murder, on November 1st, 1988, Jimmy Earl's family actually files a civil suit against the sheriff Hubert Stone and his son Kevin Stone. And one week later, on November 8th, his mother, who was 69 years old at the time, was arrested on seven drug counts, including maintaining a drug dwelling. She is sentenced to 26 months in prison. Her and the family believe that this was in retaliation for the civil suit that they filed, and it definitely looks that way to me. Right, because if they had wanted to do a drug raid, surely they could have done that at any time and not a week after she filed a lawsuit against them. This seems like classic suppression. And so within this context, you know, just reflecting on everything we just told you, you know, about the police intimidation, the murders, the drugs, the injustice in the courts, these all paved the way for a legend to arise. Julian Pierce was a Lumbee lawyer who witnessed all of the evils going on in Robinson County, and he decided that he wanted to be, a, to be a part of a movement to end all this injustice. Julian is one of the reasons we have so many Lumbees involved in politics and in the law and in creating podcasts like this today. He was a movement in and of himself. But before I get carried away with totally fangirling over Julian, Chelsea, can you just tell everybody a little bit about him? Yeah, I have to try not to fangirl too, but... Julian was born on January 2nd, 1946, and at the time of our story, Julian would have been in his early 40s. 
So he was born in Moore County, North Carolina, which is kind of a short distance from Robinson County where most Lumbee people live and where all the corruption we're talking about was happening at the time. He was one of 13 children, which is super wild to me, but I guess not super uncommon for huge Lumbee families back then. He also graduated high school at age 16, so he might have skipped a grade. After high school, he went to the University of North Carolina at Pembroke, which is located in Robinson County and was created by Native people initially to actually train Native American teachers in a segregated school system. But then the school grew and is now part of the University of North Carolina school system. Before becoming an attorney, he worked as a chemist and developed an award-winning chemical process for the decontamination of nuclear reactors. And I don't know what that means, but it sounds boss AF. Like, wow, I'm an award-winning chemist. Now let me go change career paths real quick and then become one of the most famous Lumbees of all time. So after seven years of this, you know, being a chemist, he decided that he wants to go to law school. So he enrolls at NC Central University in Durham, North Carolina, and a lot of Lumbees actually go to that law school. But recently I was talking to Arlinda Locklear, who is also a Lumbee attorney, and she's also the first Native woman to argue a case before the Supreme Court, so she's boss AF too. But she went to Duke Law at the same time that Julian was in law school at uh, Central, and that's they're in the same city. And she said that one day she was at the library when a man approached her and asked her if she was Lumbee and then told her that his name was Julian Pierce. And they became fast friends after that. And when she told me that, it was, it just blew my mind. I thought it was just so cool. It's like knowing that Beyonce and Michael Jackson were friends or something. You're crazy, but accurate. And I also want to point out how us Lumbees will find each other no matter where we are. In Robson County, Durham, on the moon, we will seek each other out. <laughs> so after law school... Junior worked in D.C. for a few years before returning home to Robinson County to serve as the first director of the Lumbee River Legal Services. And in his role here, he actually worked to advocate for everyone, Native, Black, and white folks who lived in poverty in the county. Also around this time, Robinson County had three separate school systems, white, Black, and Indian, and Julian was a major part in merging the three. So after um, working in Robinson County for a while, he was able to reunite with his friend Arlinda Locklear, who would soon become the Lumbee tribe's attorney. Julian worked on federal recognition efforts for the Lumbee people and served actually as the, f- uh, the first attorney who represented the tribe. And our Native listeners will understand what federal recognition means, but for our non-Native listeners, federal recognition is basically the process by which the federal government acknowledges um, an Indian people as a tribe and establishes a government-to-government relationship with that tribe. And last year, when I read Melinda Maynard Lowry's book on Lumbee history, she had this quote from Julian on federal recognition. He says, I see a special irony in their having suffered first and longest the onrush of ungoverned white settlement, the devastation of European-born disease and warfare, and the interminable injustice of Southern racism, only to be asked that they demonstrate not only their survival as a people, but that their survival can be fully documented according to inappropriate notions of tribal existence and survival. Okay, so obviously as soon as Julian gets to Robson County, he is doing amazing advocacy work. And not only for Lumbee people, but for all people living in poverty in the county as well. He also served as a chairman of the Lumbee Medical Clinic. So now he's gone from chemist to lawyer to education to the medical field. And like, what didn't he do? Did he sleep? He served on the board of directors of the North Carolina Legal Resource Center and was the vice chairman of the Robinson Healthcare Corporation. So Julian's just 
an all-around beast and force to be reckoned with, and definitely a man for the people. And keep in mind that Julian is living and working in the county when all of these murders and corruption and misconduct in the courts and the police force is happening. And he's actively working as an attorney for the legal aid to combat these issues. But at the same time, even though he's fighting the system, I think Julian came to the realization that in order to change the system, he had to get people like D.A. Joe Freeman Britt and Sheriff Hubert Stone out of out of power and out of office. And so in 1988, the General Assembly of North Carolina created a new superior court judgeship specifically for Robinson County. And Joe Freeman Britt, the attorney who had put so many black and native people in prison and on death row unjustly, decided to run. And Joe Freeman Britt had actually run for DA unopposed for 14 years, so most people just assumed that no one would oppose Britt in this race. But they were wrong. Because soon, Julian Pierce announced his candidacy, and if he won, it would make him the first Native American Superior Court judge in the state of North Carolina. <laughs> but... Unfortunately, this was met with a lot of hostility. Go figure. Racial tensions were obviously high in the county. Pretty much everyone in any position of major power at the time was white, including the sheriff and DA, who we've talked so much about. And Brittany, just as an aside, like when we say that everyone in power was white, we're talking about a county where the black and Indian percentage combined outweighs you know, how many white folks live in Robinson County. So they are technically white people in the county at that time and even today are in the minority. Pierce's campaigning appealed directly to Native and Black voters who had been so disenfranchised in the county for so long. Yeah, and I think I read somewhere that he actually signed up people to vote in the club, which is both hilarious and incredibly smart. My daddy probably saw him there at some point. I mean, if there's a man walking around with, you know, a clipboard... <laughs> And I've already had a couple of drinks. I would be likely to sign whatever he's got in front of me. <laughs> um, especially if I knew it was Julian Pierce and how much he had been doing for the county. Yeah, and he also did other campaigning that is just so lumpy in nature, too. He campaigned at cookouts and churches and did door-to-door, -to -door too. I wonder if he was at Lumbee Homecoming. I'm sure he was, right? So his, his approach was extremely personable and community-focused. Yeah, I think that's just one of the, th uh, the many things that makes him so endearing. And then um, one of the major issues that he campaigned on at this time was investigating Sheriff Hubert Stone's office and police force. So obviously the sheriff's department was involved in all kinds of sketchy activity like drug trafficking. Uh, but in addition to the murder of Jimmy Earl Cummings, there was also they were also suspected in several other murders that were ruled as suicides or accidents. Also, the sheriff testified in court or wrote letters on behalf of several renowned drug dealers to ask for leniency for them. Many people believe that these are the dealers the department was working directly with and that they misused their powers to help keep them free. Yeah, Hubert Stone is a wild dude. He also said that he didn't really believe that race was a problem in Robinson County and he didn't want Julian running for the judgeship. Insert eye roll here that you guys can't see. <laughs> right. And so around the, uh, the time that Julian announced his candidacy, the murders of black and native men had not stopped. And in our next episode, we will tell you about eight more murders, murders of black and native women and men, including the murder of Julian Pierce. This is the Red Justice Project. <laughs>